I'm joined today by David Niemeyer, founder and CEO of Assistive Wear. Assistive Wear make augmentative and alternative communication apps that help many people communicate better in their lives. They have a long history of Apple applications and iOS, so I thought I'd get him on the show to talk a little bit more about how everything started. Hi, David. Hi, Dave. Good to meet you. So, David, tell me, how did you get started in in development? And I'm thinking specifically Apple development way back when. Yeah, um, that goes back all the way to 1984 when uh, the Mm. first uh, Macintosh was introduced and my father managed to get one of those first Macintoshes in our country uh, into our house. And uh, that's where I... uh, started developing for for uh, for Mac basically awesome so whereabouts in the world are you based um, I'm based in the Netherlands in yep. uh, Western Europe so that that Macintosh is one of the one of the first in the country did you say yes yes absolutely um, it was one of the first in the country my father at that time had uh, good connections uh, with Apple and uh, needed one for his work, and I got hold of it too. And uh, one of the first programming languages available for it was Forf. So that was the first language uh, I started working with. At that time, I was uh, still in school. And um, I started doing development work first with Forf and later Pascal and C, etc. Yeah. Uh, mainly doing things for, uh, for school and uh, later on also did uh, create all kinds of programs that I used for my uh, my work at the university and uh, as a student also. Awesome. Uh, so take that all the way, fast forwards a little bit, all the way to um, what brought you to, to starting assistive wear. Um, what was going on at that time? Well, at that time, I was uh, actually doing uh, research in in West Africa on uh, desertification and land degradation. Um, When a friend of mine had a very serious car accident, he broke his neck and Mm. could no longer use his hands to access his computer. And he was a um, musician and graphic designer. And for him, it was obviously really important to be able to pick up some of those things again after his accident and uh, we were able to find some technology that would allow him to control his cursor with head movements and then he had a little sip and puff switch that uh, he could blow or sip on yep. to click so that gave him access to the computer but he also needed something to be able to type and at the time there was one on-screen keyboard that he used but it was very buggy and it wouldn't allow him to do things like option click to zoom in or zoom out in uh, in Photoshop. Yeah. And obviously, being a graphic designer, he needed to be able to use Photoshop as a way to do the design work that he used to do with his hands now with the computer. And so I started basically creating an on-screen keyboard specifically for him. And after a while, he said, well, you know, I know a few other people who could really benefit. And I said, well, okay, let me do a little bit more work on it. And then I created a a freeware version that I put online in uh, 1998. And that was actually uh, quite successful. I got lots of people from all over the world who downloaded it and started using it. 
and were awesome. asking me to add all these features. And at some point I said to myself, well, if, if I'm going to add all those features, I'll need to start working part-time at the university instead of full-time. And I'll need to start uh, making some money of that work. Otherwise, I cannot uh, invest that time. Yeah. And so then I, uh, in uh, 2000, I started with assistive wear and uh, that was mid-2000. And by the end of 2000, I had my first uh, non-free product ready was called keystrokes on screen keyboard basically for anyone who couldn't use a uh, a regular physical keyboard yeah and i released it as shareware and uh, much to my dismay very very few people that had been loving the old freeware version and asking me for all these new features were actually buying the shareware version right um so I was a little bit in trouble there. Um, I had invested uh, half a year worth of work in it. And uh, yeah, very few people were adopting it. And I uh, f- soon found out that at that time, uh, many people were still worried about using a credit card online or they didn't even have a credit card. And then there were those people who wanted the product, but they wanted to be reimbursed uh, through insurance and so there were some they would typically have to buy through a specialized company and those companies they said well you know a 45 dollar shareware product even if you give us the whole 45 dollars david um mm-hmm. that doesn't allow us to cover our costs of uh, of doing business uh so i basically found out that uh, at least at that time uh, shareware for assistive technology was not really uh um, a thing yep it's a not quite um, the right business model at that point no no and you know I, I don't come from any kind of business background and and i'm self-taught when it comes to development so all of this was new to me and uh, i hadn't really thought all these things through um, but yeah here i was i had a a product that had the features that people had been asking for but uh those same people were in purchasing for for these uh, these reasons. So it was right about that time that uh, I was approached by Apple um, because one of those people that had actually bought the product had written an email to Steve Jobs saying that he uh, thought that this new thing, Mac OS X, was really cool, but that without a product like mine, he wouldn't be able to access it. And so this was in the days pre-Mac OS X. Um, my, my software was for, for Mac OS 7 initially, and then 8 and 9, etc. Yeah. And um, so Steve Jobs passed this, uh, this uh, email down to someone in developer relations who contacted me and uh, basically said, well, look, um, we're interested to see products like yours come to Mac OS X. And uh, yeah, let us know what we can do to help you. And that meant help in, in terms of uh, solving engineering problems, not help in terms of uh, paying me. Yep. Um, and I had at that time no plans to do anything with Mac OS X because it was still, you know, very uh, young. Yeah, it was early days. Yeah, very early days. And the development tools that would allow me to create a product both for Mac OS X and Mac OS IX um, they were also very immature, but I guess that that contact from Apple then led me to think, well, you know, okay, let me give it a try. And so I worked for about a, a year 
on creating a version for Mac OS X. And there were quite a few things that needed to be fixed in Mac OS X itself before I could have a fully functional product. And at the same time, I had been thinking about, okay, so what do I do on the business model side? And I decided, okay, I'm going to make this a commercial product. It's going to be more expensive, but that will allow it to be resold through specialized companies. It will be covered by insurance. And that turned out to be a really good decision because when the Mac OS X version came out, instead of selling it for $45, as I had done with shareware, I sold it, I think, initially for 150 and later for 200 mm-hmm. And it was uh, sold way more than the much cheaper shareware version uh, because people could now get it through, you know, the system, so to speak. Yeah, so you had that route to, to distribution by operating yes. in, in that space. Yes, exactly. And uh, that turned out to be really good because that meant that my product was actually helping people. Whereas before, it, yeah, people either couldn't buy it or, or uh, didn't want to buy it online. You know, all those problems were solved by making it a commercial product. And to me, it was kind of weird that making it more expensive actually meant that more people could benefit. Uh, but I think it was an important lesson at the same time. Yeah, definitely. It's, it feels, certainly if I think about like the, the world that I've operated in with, with indie iOS apps, it feels almost counterintuitive. But I can see it. I can see how this, this then means, like you say, that you've got that, that, um, that ability then to go through uh, insurance and that side of things and reach people um, in the ways that the health services would be reaching them. And that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it's also important to keep in mind that this was for the Mac. And, and the Mac at that time was really a niche product. And assistive technology was a niche in, within that niche. Yeah. And so uh, for, for many, many years, uh, the software I created, because I first did that on-screen keyboard, then I did a number of other things in the accessibility space, they were the only products on Mac OS X globally that supported these users. Because yeah. at that time, Apple hadn't built a lot of accessibility features into Mac OS X. Those companies that had done accessibility software um, before Mac OS X, they were really hesitant to put resources in creating a version for Mac OS X because, well, they wanted the users to be there first. And yeah. those users couldn't get to the new platform without that kind of software. So... Yeah, for many years, Assistive were basically had a, a, a monopoly on, on computer access products for the Mac. Um, and from that monopoly, I could just basically make ends meet um, and, um, yeah, at a lower cost that would have also been totally impossible. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a very different kind of, of situation than if you look at, at the situation with iOS. If I wanted my product to be discovered and found in, let's say, France, I needed to work also with local resellers there. There was no, you know, app store that would instantly make people aware of these kind of products. That's interesting. So you're having almost to work in a level of partnership in, in that sense. Like maybe not yeah. quite to that degree, but but, but that, yeah. Yeah, I had to establish close connections with, with resellers in various countries. And in some cases, like the US, I worked with a distributor who then had a number of resellers. And they were all specialized in this particular 
um, area of, of, uh, of access technology, accessibility products. And then insurances would often cover for it. Um, and in those cases where that wouldn't be the case, then still it made sense at the time because people just didn't buy software online the way do, they do now. And, and so many people outside of countries like the U.S. didn't even have a credit card and so no means to buy online. So tell me about how, how you branched out over into iOS devices. Um, I'm sort of thinking, you know, obviously I can see how this was going with, um, with the Mac and, and being in that space. But obviously these days you've got an application over on iOS, haven't you? It's uh, ProLoquo to go. Yes, yes. Yep. Yeah, so, so what basically happened is that uh, around 2005, I created this product called ProLoquo on the Mac, which was a communication solution for people who couldn't speak. Um, but it was not that convenient to have to, you know, go to a shop and then open up your, your laptop and then use this application to speak. People really wanted something a little bit more mobile. And so when iPhone came out in 2000. Uh, Seven, um, a lot of people who knew about my ProLoco on Mac, they said, well, we like that product, but we're not happy with it on that platform. Could you do something like that for iPhone? Yeah. And obviously, initially, iPhone didn't support third-party apps. Um, but then in 2008, uh, Apple announced that they would start supporting third-party apps. So that's when I basically started developing what later became ProLoco to go. And the to go is kind of like the mobile version. So proloquo means speak out loud in Latin. And okay. um, I've always found it hard to, to, you know, find names for products that were not already taken. And if you look at any name with that has words like speech or voice in it, telecom operators typically already use that name somewhere. So that's why I said, well, let's, let's look at something different. And so... Um, then I came up with ProLoquo and then ProLoquo to go for the, the version for iOS. And it still took um, about three quarters of a year after I started before I could release it. Because at that time, uh, there was no text-to-speech available uh, through iOS itself. Right. And the company that I licensed text-to-speech from uh, for, for the Mac products, uh, Acapella Group, they um, hadn't developed their speech yet on iOS. So we closely worked together uh, during that year um, where, um, yeah, they brought their speech technology to iOS and uh, I integrated that in, into proloco to go And there were two other companies that I worked with at the time, one that provided the symbols because Proloco2Go is a, is a symbol-based communication solution so that also people who can't read and write uh, can use it. And then um, I work with this company that's uh, based in the Minneapolis area called Ultralingua uh, and licensed their grammar technology uh, for integrating. And so, yeah, I needed all those pieces to come together before I could actually release uh, my Proloco2Go product um on 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 iphone and um so for for yeah it's a little bit difficult if you haven't seen it uh but proloctigo basically you should imagine a, a screen um with uh, some buttons with pictures on them symbols and mm. a label with each of those 
and every time you press a button, it will speak that particular uh, text. And so you can string uh, sentences together by tapping individual words. And the idea of, of not pre-programming a lot of sentences, but having these individual words, is that you can combine them in so many different ways and say so much more than if you would have just one large bank of messages. And what's also important to know is that, that typically children who cannot speak, they don't really have an opportunity to experiment with language the way uh, speaking kids have. Yeah. So it's really important that they don't just get a set of pre-programmed messages, but that they really learn over time how to build their own messages. And that really gives them that freedom of speech that uh, yeah, everyone basically needs. Yeah. So you're giving them Lego, essentially, at that point to sort of bring yeah. all of this together. Yes. Yes. You could uh, put it that way. Yeah. That's awesome. So it was one of the most... Uh, advanced products at the time in terms of, of the complexity and the the demands on the on the resources of uh, of the device that those first iPhones uh, had uh, had very little uh, memory yes and where you know the last couple of years that I did work on on Mac I didn't have to worry so much about optimization but when I switched to developing for iPhone, I, I spent so much time on optimizing the use of resources. And so all these images I had to uh, optimize. And, um, you know, a, a lot of work really went into making an app like this work actually on, on a platform that was at that time far more friendly to, to very simple uh, basic applications. Yeah, because, I mean, you've got all of the the images and the loading of them performantly and quickly i guess would have been yes uh, a thing yeah yeah and, and yes. then your your um text-to-speech stack and everything else there as well would have had its own concerns exactly so all yeah. those pieces had to be as lean and mean as possible and yet for example with the images um people could choose whether they wanted to have a four or, 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 or nine or 12 or 16 images on the screen at the time, depending on their, their fine motor skills and their vision. And so these images had to be available at different sizes. So yeah. I started out with PDF and then uh, it had to be optimized to PNG on the fly for the right size and do that as was needed. So there, there was a lot of caching involved and trying to find that balance um, because also, of course, the amount of space that the app itself took should, you know, shouldn't be too big. And those voices, they took up a big chunk as well, because those iPhones back then didn't have the amount of memory available as, uh, as iPhones today have. So it was an interesting, uh, it was a very interesting experience uh, bringing a product like this to, to that platform. But once it was there, people loved it. And it uh, became real, uh, real big success. I'm wondering if you found, uh, I mean, I, I think it's probably happened anyway, just, just over the course of time. But I imagine the market has shifted almost entirely over to, to iOS and, and, and mobile devices. Uh, absolutely. So before uh, the iPhone was there and the iPad, uh, there was technology like this, but those were dedicated devices. So um, they were either kind of based on Palm Pilot kind of devices, 
uh, or they were based on like Windows um, tablets. Yeah. And those devices were really expensive. Um, a you know a iPod Touch kind of size device could easily be two to three thousand dollars US, um, and a, a tablet based could easily be eight to fifteen thousand dollars. Wow! So it those things were really expensive, and yeah, the only way people could get those was basically through insurance or other forms of government funding. In some countries, that was, was pretty well sorted out in other countries that was a real problem so many people at the time still communicated with paper-based solutions Mm. Um, and it was only you know certain particular groups of people that really got access to this this high-tech kind of communication and that totally changed when we came out with proloco to go on on iphone and and a year later on ipad Uh, suddenly there was this mainstream consumer technology that uh, provided similar kind of communication features and yeah. that really expanded the market a lot. So when we, just before we came out, there was a lot of uh, concern in the industry that our relatively low-priced product was going to, you know, break the whole market. Uh, yeah. But over time, we have seen that it actually expanded the market um, because you know, when, when when this came out, typically people with multiple disabilities in wheelchairs, um, people with, for example, cerebral palsy, they were getting access to this kind of technology. But like kids with autism, Down syndrome, they were not getting access most of the time to this kind of technology. And by this being on, on an iPad or iPhone or iPod Touch, that really opened up access to this kind of technology to these really big groups that before that time, just had paper-based communication. So it, it really democratized access in a way. That's awesome. It's, it's become a, a, an enabler in that sense for, for an awful yeah, lot of people. Absolutely. And, and today, iPad is the most popular communication device, something that yeah one couldn't have imagined uh, over 10 years ago. I wanted to ask what the development process um is is like certainly these days uh, i'm thinking like how do you respond to to user feedback and and how involved are you with the community and that side of things of people who are using your apps yeah so so originally when when i started on the mac side i always was in close contact with the people actually using the products yeah as well as the people working with with those people and so it became clear to me that that if you wanted to really make a product that solves the kind of problems that people are facing on a day-to-day basis, you need to you know, be in close contact. You need to hear what people want. You need to see them use the product. Yeah. And uh, you then need to translate that very often because people often ask for things. And if you zoom in a bit more and try to find out the underlying things, then you can come up with much better solutions than if you literally give people what they ask for. Yeah. And um, so we work closely with our community in many different ways. Um, We have, um, these days we have uh, several UX designers on our team who do research and testing with users. Uh, We also have um, a researcher on our team who does a qualitative uh, user insight research 
Um, then we have a number of people on our team who are actually from our community. So right. we have some people with disabilities on our team. We have parents of children using our kind of technology uh, on our team. Uh, we have therapists on our team and other specialists who have you know years of hands-on experience in the field. So we really try to, in, in many ways, to be really strongly connected to our, uh, our community. Um, and we try to find that balance between what people ask for and what uh, makes sense from a clinical and scientific perspective, because sometimes people ask for things that actually are not aligned with the latest clinical insights. Yeah. Because what we see is there's um, there's a real lack of knowledge in in in, in many cases. Uh, people want things that you know twenty thirty years ago were were thought to be the right way to do things. And they are not aware that in, in you know in the meantime things have progressed, right? And that you know some things that we thought were the right way to do things are are no longer considered the right way to do things. So we also do a lot in terms of education and and um, knowledge sharing. Um, so yeah, there's a constant interaction with all kinds of people in in our community. That's fantastic. What do you think the biggest challenges are in, in making the software that you make? Well, I, I think actually our biggest challenge isn't the technology itself. Um, I think our biggest challenge is the environment in which our technology is being used. Uh, when I really started in, in creating assistive technology, my assumption was that I would make this piece of technology and then um, someone, a specialist, in the field would help someone to to install it, to configure it, and, and to use it in the right way. What I've learned over time is that there are far too few of those specialists around and yeah. that most people are uh, basically on their own. Or they may get advice from someone who thinks they're a specialist, but they haven't really had the, the proper background and training. And so what we're seeing is that... Um, a lot of times, the problem is not the technology, it's outdated beliefs, attitudes, knowledge, and skills. So for ex for ex to give an example, there are many people who still believe that if you use a communication app like ours, that it will hamper someone's speech development. So they prefer to invest many years in trying to make someone speak, who in the end is not going to be able to speak in a way that, that uh, others are going to understand that person. And yeah. they avoid using this kind of technology because they're afraid that once you have that technology, it, you know, uh, there's no reason to develop your own speech anymore. Um, for, for, for decades, research has shown that that's not the case. Right. But it's still something that is widely believed. And so there are many of these kind of ideas. And, and another one that we encounter a lot is, you know, 20, 30 years ago, the idea was that when you start someone on a system like this, you give them two buttons to choose from and you ask them a question and they have to choose between one of those two options. And if they successfully do that, then you give them four buttons. And what we know now is that by limiting that choice in a way, there is not very much incentive for someone to start using a system because it's so limited. Yep. And so these are all kinds of things that we yeah constantly fight against and so we invest a lot of efforts outside the technology 
on on educating on creating um training materials on on our website we have a lot of of uh, stuff about how you use this kind of technology in practice and um that really is the biggest kind of bottleneck that we are seeing and so what we see is our our products are are sometimes used exactly as they're intended to great positive effect but we also see people sometimes using our products in ways that are totally counter to their intention to, to give you one example that we see quite a bit in practice so obviously our products are used a lot in schools with kids that can't speak and yeah. very often they are used as a way to test the knowledge of the kid so they're used as a testing tool like you know press the button that says red press the button that says yellow and by doing that instead of it becoming the communication and voice of the child it becomes the thing that adults control me with Oof. and tell me what to do and test me with yeah and obviously that doesn't make those kids start loving this technology and seeing it as an opportunity for themselves so the moment they are not in school they wouldn't want to touch it anymore no they all associate it with that event and that moment exactly so there is a lot of those kind of things that that we are you know working on how how can we address this how can we uh, educate people more on it and um we are also thinking about how can we adapt the technology so that it's less likely to be used in ways that are counterproductive and yes. i would say that with every generation of work we do on it we try to you know find new solutions to these kind of problems um so that's a big thing. That's um, really illuminating, actually, because it kind of goes to show how um, the broader community of people around the people you're assisting are, are seeing the technology as something to just try and um, to try and make them behave the same as their expectations, rather than yep. necessarily seeing like about how how it can enable those people and how they could also meet them sort of where they're at. Yeah. Yeah. I, in a way, the biggest challenge that people who do not speak face are, are the people that speak. Yeah. Uh, that are really focused on making those people that don't speak do things the same way as they do things instead yeah. of kind of, you know, accommodating midway and creating an environment where that's optimized for the, the person that doesn't speak. And um, so, yeah, we, that also means we do a lot in terms of, of advocacy for that, for that reason. Because even if we have the perfect technology, even if the user that's going to communicate with it really understands how to do it, has developed language skills, everything, they are still faced with an environment that, um, you know, may not be really supportive. Um, I, I, a good way, I think, to imagine this is Let's let's say that you're in a, in a wheelchair and you have a child and you together go to a shop. What will typically happen is that the shopkeeper is going to speak to the child instead of to you because you're in the wheelchair. Right. And that same kind of thing happens when someone can't speak and needs some time to construct their message on a device. We kind of instinctively wrongly assess someone's abilities and then we respond and treat people in ways that we would never treat people normally. 
And yeah. so there are a lot of these kind of, of barriers that, yeah, uh, make, you know, technology only a small factor in the whole problem. It's important. It's good to have the right technology, but it uh, is not a magic bullet. And, and too many people think that it is a magic bullet. They think that they can take an app like ours and an iPad and put it in front of the child and then a child will magically speak. Whereas that's not how you and I learn to speak. We learn to speak by listening to adults talking to us, around us, for yeah. years before we actually said our first words. And it's the same thing with this kind of technology. So the way to learn to use, to communicate with this technology, to see other people use it. So parents and teachers and, and etc. they actually need to take that same device and that same app. And when they speak, they need to press buttons. So I might say... Um, you know, let's go outside and I press the button go. That way someone can start associating what I said verbally with the button go and the sound that it makes with what we're actually going to do. And that's the exact same way children learn language. They learn language by hearing things over and over again yep. and by making associations. And using a device like this, it's like a different language. You need to have a model of how that language is used before you can learn to use it. And um, yeah, that's something that more and more people are beginning to understand, but there are still way too many people who look at it from a very different perspective and, and in a way use the technology in ways that are, are yeah totally inappropriate and that make children just hate the technology rather than see it as an opportunity. Yeah, so you kind of got, got a onboard those people around the children as well yes and 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 so it's, it's so and then so there, there may be these parents who are totally new to all this because they've never you know experienced anything like this in their lives and they might be open to learn more about it but they may have a school or a therapist who has these old-fashioned ideas yeah and so they need to fight that and so it's for parents, this can be a really, really lonely journey. Um, it's not something anyone really prepares you for. And um, it's usually one of the many problems you face if you have a child with a disability. The child might also have medical issues or other issues that you need to deal with. So it's um, an app like this ends up being used in a really complicated and tough environment. And, um, yeah, we cannot stop with just technology. We need to go beyond that, and we need to see how we can adapt the technology to improve that practice. And so that's one of the biggest puzzles we're always dealing with. What do we do? How can we make that technology be used more in the way it's intended and less in the ways it's not intended? How can we support people when they start introducing the technology and all that kind of, of stuff? Yeah. So, so so much broader than just the technology in the app itself. Yeah, and, and that reflects on our team. I mean, uh, yes, we have quite a few developers and QA on staff, but we also have a lot of people who look at all those other aspects and who, you know, provide training materials, who write blog posts and, you know, all those kind of things. Coming back to the technology just for a second, I'm, I'm wondering, just as iPadOS and iOS are, are now sort of so much more mature. Um, are there any particular features or things you're looking forward to that, that sort of might be on their way 
that could sort of help improve or take your apps in other directions? Well, actually, over the last couple of years, the improvements have really been very good, both in general, what the technology can do, and also in all the accessibility that Apple has built into uh, this uh, platform. Um, so there is less and less, in a way, that uh, where the technology is holding us back. Um, I think one area that uh, yeah still has potential is is head and eye tracking for people who cannot use their hands. Yeah. So Apple has has built some of that in. Um, so there's this feature called switch control, where you can, if you want, with head movement, uh, indicate that you want to select something or not. But it would be really nice if at some point a full head and eye tracking that provide the same level of access as um, uh, as tapping does. And, yeah. and these are areas where third parties, you know, they can't totally solve these things because then you get a, either a situation where um, it only works in this one app or every app needs to, you know, install a certain SDK. So then people get locked into a particular app. Yeah. Or you don't have an ideal interface because obviously in iOS, lots of things are locked out from from third-party developers. So that's an area where I still hope Apple will continue to improve and integrate in terms of accessibility so that people can have that kind of access method across every app because I think that's really, really important. iPad is a multi-purpose device and anyone who needs accessibility should be able to use every app in the same way and not you know rely on this one app has been adapted this one app has not etc yep now that makes a lot of sense oh well, hopefully we'll see more of that come in june this year and, and, and in the years to come yeah i mean the te- technology definitely brings this these things closer and closer so i hope that uh, that one day this kind of feature will be uh, natively integrated uh, on on uh, on the system where next do you think things are going to go for for assistive wear and the apps and products that you have yeah well we, we've been reflecting a lot on, on our own success and, and in, in a way we've been extremely successful uh, our apps are the most popular in, the, in their category um, they're also with like you know 4.7 4.8 star ratings really well appreciated yeah but if we look at how they're used still in practice, um, then we really want to go from having happy and satisfied customers to successful customers. So we, we really want to um, focus on improving the amount of communication that people achieve with it and the speed with which they develop that communication. And that a lot of that is related to you know, how can we better support people uh, in helping, you know, their kids or their students develop the knowledge and skill set um, to, to, you know, for language and, and, and communication. So our, our current focus is, is really um, about what are the things we can do to make people more successful communicators, communicators. And so that's really what we're focusing on. And that goes all the way from how, how do we measure if someone is successfully communicating to uh, what are the strategies that people need and how can we help people in those strategies. Um, because, you know, we're, we're a company with a social mission. 
Yep. So in the end, what we hold ourselves accountable for is not how many units of our apps we sell or how much profit we can generate. It's really about can we achieve that communication success that we want? And in, in a way, I think the popularity of our apps and the, the ratings, they're kind of hiding the fact that there is such a gap between what people could potentially achieve with our products and what they're actually achieving with it. Right. So that's where our current focus is to bridge that gap. That's awesome. So always improving and, and still a lot more that you could, could get into and could do. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, uh, I think, the, the key thing for us is, uh, yeah, take on board everything we've learned, take on board the latest developments in clinical and scientific knowledge and, and really take all that and, and then you know, find ways and solutions to have people become more successful. It's been awesome talking to you, David. Um, I've, I've really enjoyed that and finding out more about what you do. That's fantastic work. Well, thank you. And it's, uh, I'm glad to, glad to have this opportunity to share a little bit more because I know for many developers, if, if they look at the pricing of our products, they're like, hey, what? <laughs> yeah. And um, I, I do understand that. That's, that's what I thought, you know, over 20 years ago. Uh, why are those products so expensive? It should be possible to do it cheaper. And, and to some degree, that has been possible. I mean, proloco to go which is our most expensive app, is 250 US dollars. That's yeah. a lot less than the two to 15,000K that this kind of solution used to cost, even if you add in the cost of an iPad. Yeah. Um, so we're really happy about that. But it's also a kind of price level that we need to be able to continue investing in improving products, in providing support uh, around it, and in all those kind of things. And, and I think for, for many developers, they're, they're thinking about, should my app be $0.99 cents or $9.99? Yeah. Uh, in our case, um, if... if Way back when I released Plog to Go for the first time, if I would have gone for the 99, uh, 9.99, the app wouldn't have been around, the Citiware wouldn't have been around, and all of our competitors would also have probably either not brought their products to this platform uh, because there was no money in it, or they would have done so but not been successful. And... Um, so I think it's really important to think of, of kind of, you know, what, what kind of market are you operating in? And if that market, things are really expensive, then it's good to see if you can do things to bring down what it costs. But you should also keep in mind there are reasons why certain things are expensive. And before you uh, price yourself out of business, uh, you need to understand those reasons in a way. And uh, we're happy that we've been able to keep this price level and maintain a sustainable business. Yeah. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, it, it, uh, it seems odd to many people, but it, it's what it takes in a way to, to serve a niche market that requires a lot of development work where you need to provide a lot of support to people also. And I think, uh, yeah, every, every market has its own price level that actually makes sense. And if we could lower it, we would lower it. Um, 
But uh, yeah, if we would lower it today, uh, yeah, we would be out of business soon and then no one would benefit. Or we would go into some kind of maintenance mode where we, you know, keep getting the money flowing in, but we wouldn't really be improving and, and making a difference. So that's why we said, you know, we're going for a, a pricing level that actually, you know, allows us to create a sustainable business in the end that helps more people than if we try to be the cheapest game in town. Before we before we go, David, um, where can people find you online? Um, they can go to assistiveware.com, and that is assistive, and then the word wear, like in software, they're one word, Yep. and then .com, and then you'll find our website, and obviously you can also find us, us on, the, uh, on the App Store. Uh, we have several Macs, Mac apps on the Mac App Store and several iOS apps on the, uh, the, uh, the App Store as well. Excellent. Well, we can link all of that up in the in the show notes as well. So, uh, brilliant. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me. 